Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra, extra special guest. What can I say? Ron Barron, founder of Barron Capital, he's a legend. I don't even know where to begin with this guy. He founded Barron Capital in 82. The performance numbers he's put up have just been obscene. Everything he does, he seems to find his way to just spectacular returns, whether it's public companies or private companies or real estate. Just Google search him on East Hampton and the property he bought for $100 million in the midst of the financial real estate collapse in 07, he turned that into gold. I mean, he just has an eye for intrinsic value and a process for doing things that really is, is just amazing. What I ended up doing in this conversation was kind of giving him a nudge and then just getting out of his way. He just tells all sorts of stories about how different investments work out. I ask him, what are you doing in the growth space? I really know you as a small cap guy. And that's how he built his uh, reputation. And he describes the small caps that he bought when he was first getting started in the 80s. You know, small companies like Disney and Hyatt and International Gaming. And it's hilarious because 40 years ago, those were small cap companies. He just seemed to have a knack of identifying the companies that were about to go from relatively small to giant. And it's pretty hilarious to hear him discuss that when he was a broker in the 70s, he was upset because he would buy stocks, watch them triple and sell them, and then watch them go up 30x over the next 30 years, which is why his turnover ratio is insane. It's like 4%. He's very Warren Buffett-like. He never sells. He finds a good company, and he rides them forever. So he's a legend in the industry. I found this to be just an endlessly entertaining and fascinating conversation. With no further ado, my conversation with Ron Barron. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Ron Barron, founder of Barron Capital, He began the firm in 1982, and it has become known for its long-term, fundamental, active approach to growth investing. 17 of their mutual funds have assets of $49 billion. One of the funds uh, run by Ron and his son Michael was up 148% in 2020. Nearly all of their funds have been beating their benchmarks since their inception way back in 1982. Ron Barron, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. So let's go way back to your childhood. You you had written, you were 14 when you talked your father into letting you buy your first stock. Uh, you put $1,000 into the market, and by the time you hit college, it had quadrupled to $4,000. 
and you were hooked. You just began studying the market almost obsessively, right? Tell us a little bit about how that led to your interest in, in being a, a money manager. Well, my dad was uh, an engineer for the Army, and my mother was a buying agent for the Army, and uh, so professionals. Uh, and uh, the people who were most successful uh, were doctors and lawyers, and if you had a house on the, uh, on the lake, uh, it was worth $50,000. Our house was worth $20,000. And so I and the guy I had on the lake, uh, he owned rides on the boardwalk and drove a Cadillac and probably made $100,000 a year. That, to me, was success. And uh-huh. so I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, I didn't get into medical school. When you were talking about the first investment, I've been working since I've been 13 or four, since I've been 14. Uh, that's when you got working papers. So my first job was as a caddy. I had all these summer jobs, caddy, waiter, uh, bartender, uh, um, uh, busboy, uh, lifeguard, uh, water ski instructor, cabana boy. Uh, one summer, I actually had a job uh, where I was working 9 to 5 as a lifeguard, and 11 to 7, I worked in the emergency room uh, as an orderly. And uh, people would come in on Saturday night, shot or stabbed, and I'd have to hold them down, a skinny little kid. I would hold them down on a gurney until the next of kin uh, came and gave permission to operate. But people died while I was holding them. So my job was uh, I would have to clean bedpans, I'd have to hold people on the uh, on, on the gurney until they uh, in, until they got permission to operate, and then uh, in emergency in the internal uh, in the ICU when people died, I would unplug them and I'd have to put the bodies wrap them in sheets and I'd have to put them in the freezer. That was my job, <laughs> eleven to seven for uh, for there and uh, nine to five. So I was always interested in uh, being successful. I didn't know exactly what success was, and when I invested. Uh, when my, when I convinced my dad to allow me to invest in stocks. He was never able to invest in stocks. Uh, when, I, uh, when, he con- when I convinced him, I was able to take my $1,000 I had from my bar mitzvah, and I ultimately invested it in, uh, uh, in Monmouth County National Bank. My dad said, you know, not the stock market, but, you know, tell me about a company you want to invest in. Explain to me why you want to invest in it. Research it. And if it uh, makes sense to me, you can do it. And uh, the, the local bank uh, was owned, uh, Monmouth County National Bank was principally owned uh, by one of the wealthiest people in, probably the wealthiest person in my neighborhood. Uh, and he owned that bank, three-story red brick building, white pillars in front, Georgian-style building. Senator of uh, Senator Stout from New Jersey had his office in the building. And, uh, and ultimately, I looked at the company, and, and I convinced my dad to let me invest. And that's where I had my savings. Uh, and they were getting two and a half percent interest or two and a quarter percent interest. You bring in your passbook, and every quarter they uh, print out your interest. Uh, so uh, ultimately, invested in that, and then I would uh, go home. So I was interested in girls and sports, and and uh, but every day I would look at the Asbury Park Press, and they had ten or fifteen local stocks. And every day from the time I invested my hundred shares at ten dollars a share, every single day the stock either stayed the same or went up an eighth or a sixteenth or a quarter every single day. And then seven months later, eight months later, it was acquired for uh, $17 when I paid 10 for it. And so all of a sudden, my $1,000 became worth 1700 I said, oh, my God, nothing to this. I want to do this. And uh, so, so I wanted to uh, uh, be an investor somehow. And I would read about uh, well-known investors, you know, uh, Jerry Sy with uh, Manhattan Fund. And, and then I went to uh, – and I graduated college, didn't get into medical school. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. Uh, and 
I had a fellowship, a PhD fellowship at Georgetown, uh, and I thought I would do that for a year in biochemistry and uh, ride my motorcycle, wear my white jacket, pretend I was a doctor. And uh, <laughs> so I did that for uh, a year, and I was making $1,600 a year. And I was working as a bartender uh, and a, a waiter at uh, 1789 uh, in, uh, in Georgetown. And, uh, and then uh, the summer, on Fridays and Saturdays, to make extra money. And I was living in a basement in Rock Creek Park. And uh, that summer, uh, one of my friends who actually did get into medical school, my best friend, uh, we said, okay, why don't we see if we can sell fuller brushes? Maybe we can make money doing that. So we went uh, into a neighborhood. We sold the record number of fuller brushes. Uh, it was a black neighborhood. And we sold record number of fuller brushes in southeast Washington, I think it was. Uh, and then uh, uh, when we ultimately went back to deliver those brushes, uh, there were no deposits, and uh, the people wouldn't even answer the door. You'd hear a little voice inside saying, Mommy, Mommy, it's a fuller brush man, and, and they'd say, Get away from the door. And said so not a single person took a brush that they bought. Uh, but but this, this it changed my life because uh, we went, came to a building, high-rise, and, uh, and it said absolutely no soliciting. And so I said, okay, Bob, you start at the top and I'll start at the bottom. We'll meet in the middle somewhere. You know, we just bang on doors. And so we bang on doors, and somewhere in the middle of the building, a guy answers the door, and he's a few years older than I am, and he's well-dressed. He has an apartment, and he has furniture, and he has windows that look out on the sky instead of, you know, standing on a chair to look out at grass, you know, because you know, you're in the basement. And, uh, and he's, he's dressed nicely, and he's a wife, and he's, he's cooking dinner for him in the kitchen. I say, what are you, how come you're not in Vietnam? He says, well, I'm working in the patent office. I'm a patent examiner. Uh, and I said, well, how do you do that? And he's making $11,000 a year. I said, how do you do that? And he said, well, uh, you take the law boards, and if you get into uh, law school, uh, then you can get a job in the patent office as an examiner. And I said, okay, I want to do and, and, uh, and she invites me in, buys some fuller brushes, actually. Uh, and But the big thing is he tells me about, here's this critical skills job about and that I can fit for, uh, fit into, and, uh, uh, and and starting salary was $7,729. I go from making $1,600 a year living in a basement uh, to making $7,729 a year uh, for the next three years and a draft-exempt job. Uh, and I said, wow, that's great. So I, so I took the boards, did, a real, did real well, got into George Washington Law School, went to school at night, and patent examined in the daytime. And then when I got to be 26, I'm now, uh, but I was always interested in the stock market. I read about it, never had any courses on it, never had any courses in economics, except for uh, Echo 101 in college. And then, uh, but I read all these books. And, uh, and then I got to be 26, and I couldn't be drafted anymore. And uh, the day after my birthday, I quit my job in the patent office, and they had a going-away lunch for me. At the, uh, at the Holiday Inn, which I was late for, across the street from Crystal City in, in uh, Virginia. I'm late for the lunch. I had a date, you know, girlfriend. And so I get there, and I'm late, and everybody understood where I was. And, and so I, I, I come in, my motorcycle, and, and, uh, and, and, and everyone started joking around. And, and my boss was Mr. Liebman. Somehow he really liked me. And I, he sort of identified with this crazy guy who was young and long hair and City war and, uh, and and so, but he liked me and and so he was 
quoting me. And, and uh, but uh, I, I was never very good as a patent examiner. Uh, but he said uh, so. His speech, his going away speech, uh, to me at the uh, patent office lunch uh, to to uh, honor me for, for uh, school. He says, you know, um, there was uh, you know Ron. Uh, he didn't uh, like being a patent examiner so much. Uh, and he was okay at it, but you know it wasn't his thing. And but you know he's always been interested in the stock market. And that's how he's going to go to New York and, and, and find his uh, calling. But there was another patent examiner. He had the same idea where he also didn't like uh, being a patent examiner so much. And that was a long time ago in the 1930s. And, and he lived in Switzerland or Germany. And, uh, and that was Albert Einstein. And he did okay. And I expect Ron <laughs> to do okay. So he's comparing me to Albert Einstein. Uh, and then I go to New York. And, I, of course, I'm now in debt $15,000. I was actually in debt. Fourteen thousand four hundred. So there's fifteen thousand debt, but I had six hundred dollars in cash. So I go to live again in a basement of one of my friends from college, uh, from high school, and uh, in Maplewood, New Jersey. And I would go every day to New York uh, to uh, try to knock on doors to uh, to interview for a job as an analyst. It was just impossible to get a job. Nineteen sixty nine. I was uh, I was unemployed for three months. I was running out of money. Told my dad, you know, I, I'm never getting a job in, in, on Wall Street. I would, I would apply for jobs as a chauffeur, thinking that for a guy who's the head of a Wall Street firm, thinking that, gee, if I can talk to him and if I can get a job for him, then maybe uh, I can talk my way into some uh, starter job there, like a, a mailroom guy or something. And but uh, no jobs, and uh, and and ultimately, I convinced uh, Tony Sabell from uh, Delaford Harvey to Bell, which is part of Janet Montgomery Scott, uh, to give me a chance. And I wrote a, it hired me in the uh, fall of 1969. And I was the research department for Janet Montgomery Scott, a brokerage firm in Philadelphia. And there are 250 offices, uh, 250 brokers in five offices. And Tony every week was in uh, Princeton, which is where I lived with him uh, at his firm, Delaford Harvey to Bell. And, uh, and and what I would do is I would go, uh, he would every week pick stocks for me to go visit the companies. I'd go visit them, and I'd write a letter, and then the letter went to all the salesmen. And then, so I left Washington making $11,000 a year, and here I am making $15,000 a year. It promised me 18000 by the end of the year. I didn't get the raise. Uh, and, uh, and, then, uh, uh, and then I got fired because I wrote a negative report about a company that uh, that ultimate bankrupt, but I screwed up Jenny Montgomery Scott for being in the underwriting group. Uh, and then, uh, then it was very easy for me to get my next job. And Alan Abelson from Barron's, uh, he, would, he was on my list for this letter that I wrote every week. And so I wrote a letter every week for Jenny Montgomery Scott, uh, gave it to their salesman about the companies they've been to visit, uh, go to the 250 uh, brokers in these five different offices or six offices, and that was what they sold to their clients every week, the companies I've been to visit. Uh, ultimately, uh, that was for, uh, for three years. And then uh, now I go to uh, uh, New York and get an, another analyst job. And then I, went, uh, I became partners with a friend of mine from law school. And we sold research to, uh, to hedge funds. Uh, I had 100 clients, ultimately. And... Uh, hedge funds, mutual funds, anyone who is well-known, I, uh, I would do research and sell it to them for uh, their commissions. And uh, 
and I went from uh, from having a negative net worth of, uh, of fifteen thousand uh, dollars in 1970 uh, to getting uh, to making a million dollars in a year in 1980 and being worth a million dollars. And then wow. 1982 started Baron Capital. At that time, we had uh, $10 million under management. $10 million, That's with an M. And an uh, M. it was so, all from uh, from one person. Uh, he had, uh, it was Soros. And, and, and he had given <laughs> six, really? people, six people who were his favorite stockbrokers in the 1970s, 76 or 77, he gave each of us $5 million uh, after he had had a tough year. So they said, Quantum said, why don't you have some other people manage money for you instead of just you? And he picked his uh, six favorite uh, uh, brokers. And I was one of them. And my $5 million became worth $10 million. And everyone else would buy and sell and trade. And, uh, and my, my little segment of that uh, Quantum Fund was called Mandrake. Mandrake the Magician. Mandrake. And what I would do is I would just buy stuff and I'd hold it, and uh, <laughs> and and that's why the five million became ten, and then 1992 uh, we were up to a hundred and we started our first uh, mutual fund, 1987 Baron Asset Fund, and uh, initially in '82 there were three people: Susan Robbins, Linda Martinson, and me. Uh, then 1992 had a hundred million and maybe we were ten people then. Now we have a hundred. Now we have forty. Nine point one billion, and uh, we've made our clients forty-seven billion in profits. And wow, that that's gone, amazing! Uh, and I've gone from having uh, uh, you know a negative net worth to a million-dollar net worth, and now uh, Forbes says I'm one of the wealthiest people in the country, and I have uh, five and five and a half percent of the you know, two two billion seven of the money that's invested in the mutual funds uh, is me. I've, I've, that's my two sons. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. That's an amazing story. I, I have to ask this. So I know you primarily as a small cap manager. In fact, the Barron Small Cap Fund is up an average of 11.4% a year since its inception. Its benchmark is the Russell 2000, which is only up 7.4%. Let's discuss a little bit how you built your reputation originally around small caps. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Barron Small Cap Fund happens to be managed by Cliff Greenberg, uh, not by me, and he's done terrific. And uh, Barron Growth Fund is managed by me uh, and uh, with with uh, Neil Rosenberg. And the CAGR on that one, uh, since that inception in 1994, 
is 14.16 uh, compared to 9.04 uh, for the uh, for the Russell 2000, 10 and a half for the S&P. And then, uh, so all these funds, uh, so starting off, the idea that we had originally, uh, when, when I was doing research in the 1970s and selling it for commissions, my ideas were smaller companies like McDonald's, Disney, uh, Federal Express, <laughs> a Nike, Mattel, Hyatt. They were small companies, a billion, two, three billion dollars market cap. And, and my idea was that I was getting about 1% in, uh, in commissions for every idea that I had. And so I would go around, and if I got someone to spend six or seven or eight hundred thousand dollars on a stock, I would make six or seven or eight thousand dollars in commissions. And and then uh, it didn't take me long to figure out. Okay, well, if I got him to buy a stock for six or seven or eight thousand dollar commission, then if I got him to sell a stock, then I would make another six or seven or eight thousand dollars in commissions. That's that was my my you know so that was how I paid the rent. And then after about five or six or seven or eight years. Uh, I, was, I looked back and I said, man, I am a disaster. I looked at all these companies they invested in, and they'd gone up so much. And, and uh, I said, I could have been rich. You know, I, 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 all these things. I was, what am I, crazy looking at these things and selling them so quick? And you know, I invested in Dalen uh, with, uh, uh, with Ken Langone. And he calls me up one day, and he says, uh, hi, I'm Ken Langone, and we went to college together. Uh, He's about 10 years older than I am, or 8 years older than I am, went to Bucknell. And he said, you know, people like us, we got to stay together. I said, people like us, what are you talking about? And so he says, why don't we go to lunch? And uh, so we go to lunch at, uh, uh, I guess it was lunch at the Waldorf, and it was the Bull and Bear uh, restaurant, which he, sure. he was in. And so I knew him, he didn't, you know, and he said, look, you're buying this company, Dalen, uh, and, and I'm buying it. It just had come out of bankruptcy, and uh, it was run by a guy named Sanford Sigaloff. And uh, there were two guys who uh, had a business inside of that that I thought was really cool. Uh, 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 Marcus and uh, what was the other guy's name? Uh, Han- they both ran Handy Dan. Ultimately became Home Depot. Right. And, uh, and and so so I invest in this company at uh, for my clients, and, and Ken is investing in Celsius. Ron. Just killing me. Every time I see something, you fight me for the stock. Why don't we just do something where we split things? You take half and I'll take half. I, I said, fine, that sounds good to me. And if I see something, I'll show it to you. You see something, you show it to me. And we'll split it 50-50. I said, great. He was buying it for himself. I was buying it for my clients. And uh, the stock goes from $2 to 4 or $5 a share. I sell all my stock uh, because I make commission selling. And, uh, and he hangs on, and then ultimately uh, he right, refinances the whole thing, and those guys who were running uh, Handy Dan get fired, and then you go to Ken. He raises the money for him and builds Home Depot. That's Home Depot. Uh, that's where it comes huh. from. And if I had been an investor and I stayed with it, you know, it would have been so much earlier for me to be successful. Uh, but, uh, but small companies, companies that other people weren't following so much that are growing real fast, uh, and, uh, and that's, that's where... Uh, we focused last week or the week before, and I'm writing about this in my current quarterly letter. Um, I was uh, I, I got a phone call from Chuck Matheson. And the same thing happened with me with him, where uh, I guess in the 80s, uh, and he and I were both buying international games, 
And the market cap was $100 million. He was buying it to take it over. I was buying it to make brokerage commissions. And, uh, and, and, and uh, he, all, he calls me up and he says, why don't we? And it was the same kind of split thing. I said, fine. And so I make my doubles or triples or quadruples or something. And, uh, and he stays with it. And it goes from $100 million of uh, market cap to $10 billion. Ten billion, hundred million to ten billion. He told me I was the only guy I ever really understood what this megabucks was and and how important it was and how it was just uh, you know linking up all these uh, slot machines and all these different casinos. And uh, says uh, and, and ultimately, like in uh, I guess it was around two thousands, then the uh, the government, the sent uh, in New York wanted to have independent directors for uh, independent chairmen for mutual funds. And Chuck became the chairman of our mutual fund company, a Barron Funds, for five years. And we wanted to have an independent director, independent uh, executive uh, chairman. And uh, so he calls me up about, and now he's in his probably 85, 90 years old, and he's uh, retired. He's living in Reno. And last time I saw him was about a year ago, two years ago, and he's visiting a plant, a Tesla plant in Reno. And he invites me over and spent an afternoon with him. It was so much fun. Uh, but he calls me up, and he's now chairman emeritus for Barron Funds and chairman emeritus also for International Game. And he calls me up and says, Ron, congratulations on on, uh, on on Tesla. He says, you know, I never thought this would work. And, you know, you were right, and you hung in there, and everyone was criticizing you, and you believed, and you were right, and I was wrong, and everybody else was wrong. You made, you know, congratulations on that. And, uh, and and then I'm talking to my trader, uh, who's been working at Barron Capital since 1987, I think he told me. Uh, and I'm talking to him about the uh, conversation uh, uh, that, uh, that Chuck had with me. Oh, yeah, Chuck, the way he starts the conversation is, he says, you know, when I first met you in the 1980s, uh, all you were, you were talking about was uh, investing in wireless telephones. And he says, and this is, this is how I start off my next uh, shareholder letter, the letter from Ron. It's, uh, Ron, here's the quote. Ron, when I first met you 35 years ago, you were investing in wireless telephones. Wow, that's a pretty far-out idea, I thought. That's Chuck. So he's thinking, I'm, I'm in the 1980s, and I'm investing in U.S. Cellular and and Macaw uh, Cellular and Lind Broadcasting and uh, uh, George Lindemann's uh, Metro Mobile. And, uh, and he says, man, that's crazy. Wireless telephones? I was thinking of Maxwell Smart. Get smart on television. You know, you <laughs> take off your shoe and you talk into your shoe. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and of course, wireless phones, that's, that's become, you know, everything. And, and then I was talking to, uh, uh, to David, uh, our trader, about... Uh, conversations, and he says, you know, and I was talking about Tesla, and Chuck just called to congratulate me about Tesla, and he says, Ron, you always invested in things like this. You know, when I first joined you in the 1980s, you were talking about cellular telephones. You were just gotten back with Judy from a vacation in Italy, a week vacation in Italy, and you just uh, uh, said, man, everywhere I go, people are talking on these little cell phones this is going to be unbelievable. I have you know, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. In that time, you know, uh, we had bought a when we started Barron Capital. I, still, I bought a telephone, 1982, 
I bought one. It was $5,000. It was a briefcase, the size of a briefcase. And now it's late 80s, and they're, and they're down to smaller phones. They're still, they look like a, um, you know, a brick or something, the size of a brick. And, but, you know, and he said, and you were talking about it then. And that's all you want to invest in then and, and all these companies. So you always invested in those kind of things. And so, so the idea was initially uh, to invest in companies that were worth more uh, than they were selling for in the stock market. And if you could buy a hotel room, for example, or, uh, you know, if it cost you $100,000 to build and you made $10,000 a year after you built it, and you could buy it in the stock market for $70,000, and then it would go to the value... Uh, that that's how I started, and then uh, you know when, when I when I went out on my own, I figured that was the safe thing to do. I didn't you know like Warren Buffett's thing where you buy the cigarette butts on the street, and and Mario uh, Gabelli, you know it's about you know buying things you know discounted cash flow, and but that wasn't really what I loved doing. I loved finding these businesses that were that could grow tremendously from uh, from what they were now, and and that's where so it started off finding smaller companies that people ignored. But then what would happen is that, you know, out of the 10 things that you bought, uh, two or three would be amazing successes. And then, uh, you know, a few of them would be sort of ordinary. And the more you bought of them, the harder it was to sell them to get out at the other side. And then there were always you left over with things that, you know, how do you get out of them? And and, you, and the answer was you don't. So so I was not that interested in that. and uh, and, I, and I wanted to have a business that was going to last uh, for a long time. And so, again, going back to my parents, I wanted to have a business that people uh, like my parents uh, would be able to invest in the stock market. Uh, you know, because huh. I, I always believed. And, and uh, so, so I always believed in this sort of thing. And, and, and the idea behind the mutual funds was that here's a way that I would be able to give a service to people like my parents, so they could save for their retirement and, and, and their uh, life events. I, I got a phone call about so so uh, you know so we have a house in Long Island and uh, one in Florida where I am now, and then of course we live in New York. And uh, in our house in Long Island, uh, one of my sons uh, and his wife uh, were staying there about uh, a month or two ago. And we get a, uh, and he calls me up and he says, Dad, I just got uh, four bottles of Dom Perignon from, uh, from, uh, he tells me who it's from. And uh, I said, oh, wow, uh, uh, Bob, he, he worked with me when I was at uh, Hertzfeld and Stern uh, from 73 to 82. He was a retail stockbroker. And mm-hmm. he sends me four bottles of Dom Perignon. I said, man, that's a lot of money. I got to call him to thank him. I can't understand why he would send me you know, champagne. I call him up, and he says, Ron, uh, you know, in 73 to 82, when you were working at Hertzfeld and Stern, and then ultimately uh, you and Susan, who was my assistant, left. Susan is now vice president of Barron Capital, and she's our healthcare analyst, uh, and, and left. And I said, I have to invest. And you were selling your research uh, to hedge funds and institutions, and I saw what you were doing. And and I have a and I have retail brokers. I'm a retail broker, and they were my uh, my clients. I uh, piggybacked on some of your ideas, but I said, well, if I have a chance to invest with you, I am going to invest with you." 
And so when you started your first fund in 87, I invested in it. And then in 1992, when you started Barron Partners Fund, it sounded like a very cool idea. So I did something that I never do, and I advise my clients they should never do. I borrowed $200,000 to invest in Barron Partners Fund. I had to invest with you. And, and so he put in the $200,000, and then he said, and then after it doubled or tripled, I sold half of it. And, uh, and I left the other $100,000 in. And the other $100,000 that I took out, I put that into uh, this uh, little uh, fund of funds uh, called Castle, uh, which I wanted to, uh, which, which, which we had at Barron Funds, at Barron Capital, uh, for some of the employees to invest in some of the people who I was friends with. And, and then some of it I was doing myself. And so he says, and then uh, that, that $100,000 left in Barron Partners Fund, that uh, is now over 40,000 shares of Barron uh, Partners Fund. It's worth over $7 million. So the 100,000 became worth over $7 million. And then the 100,000 I took out, uh, that became uh, worth uh, $1,700,000. And, and he says, and basically, I want you to know that you've paid for my son to go to medical school. He just graduated from medical school. You've paid for him to go to medical school. In addition to that, I have another child who's disabled. And I never really understood how I was going to take care of him uh, for the rest of my life. And uh, you've taken care of him for the rest of my life. Um, so, so, so here, so there isn't anything that you could do that I wouldn't that I wouldn't believe in. And I walked down the street. You know, my my youngest son got married uh, last September, uh, a year and a half ago, and uh, and his uh, he's from they're from Virginia Beach. And his parents uh, came up, uh, of course, for the wedding and everything. We had a wedding in our house. And, uh, and uh, when uh, they came to our office, and when uh, we're walking home from our office in the General Motors building uh, to our apartment, uh, as we're walking up Madison Avenue, two people jumped out of doorways to say, Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. And, uh, and uh, Jenna's. Uh, mother, who I'm walking with, Judy's walking with uh, her dad, uh, they, she says, does this always happen to you? I said, it's unbelievable, all over the place. People are always saying thank you. When, I, when we have our annual meeting, they come out uh, of our conference afterwards. It's the same thing, where they say, gee, you know, thank you for my life. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for, I mean, it's, it's amazing. One of my, this, this guy who I was telling you about, uh, Ray Novak, actually, who's my high school friend, uh, who was living in Maplewood uh, when I was living in his basement trying to get a job on Wall Street. Uh, he's now a director of Barron Funds, and he has been for 25, 30 years. And, uh, and uh, you know, he calls me up, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm 77 now, and, uh, and I've been investing with you um, since the very beginning, and thank you for all this. You know, you, you know, I don't have to think about stuff anymore. And I was for a while, I was trying to pick stocks, and you know, because I read a lot, and and said so I, I can't pick stocks. I, you know, I, I come to your meetings, you know, to the board meetings every three months, and I see what you're doing, and I listen to the analysts you're working for you. There's 172 people now at Barron Capital, and 41 or 42. Our, our analysts and portfolio managers have been there a really long time, and uh, and, and I see and, and well every 
not all of them a long time. We hire one or two people a year, uh, three sometimes, and uh, we hire 10 or 15 people a year in total. And, we, you know, they could be in risk management or they can be uh, legal accounting, uh, you know, compliance, uh, sales, uh, um, all these IT. Uh, of course, I... I wouldn't have any clue as far as what we need uh, to hire. I know what I need to hire for the research, but all these other people. So I'm in charge of 40 people, and uh, and Linda Martinson, uh, who is the third employee, Susan Robinson and I, and Linda, uh, and she's the president of the firm and chairman of the mutual funds, or she has all these different titles, and chief operating officer, and she's the one who hires all these other people that we need. And initially, other guys there would say, why are we hiring risk? What is that all about? What is this uh, attribution? What do those people do? And always, you know, saying and thinking, gee, if, if we're hiring all these other people, then that means that I'm going to make less money. And so because some of that money is going to them instead of to me. That's the mind, <laughs> mindset that people have when um, a business grows and everyone thinks that it's growing because... They're great. Of course, they are great. Uh, but everyone thinks everything is because of them until they go home at night and think about it and they say, oh, <laughs> now maybe it's not all because of me. Uh, but, th- but then uh, all of a sudden... That's right. Small, smaller piece of a bigger pie. Yeah. And, but then all of a sudden everyone says, gee, I can't write my shareholder letters without talking to Claudia. And so Claudia is this uh, a, a, a young woman who went to MIT and math and... She has all this risk metrics and everything that she looks at and explains things to me. But she can explain where we're making money and where we're not. And, Ron, you've taken this much risk. And, and for me, I don't really care that much about uh, – I, I have to see where I'm making and where I'm losing and, and, uh, and, and to make sure that things don't get too, too out of whack. But for the most part, uh, you know, Henry Fernandez from, from, uh, from MSCI, uh, so he invites me to speak to his board of directors, and and he says, uh, you know, he, he wants to you know, talk about uh, capital allocation and about investments that he should be making, and uh, should he be buying back stock, or should he be paying out dividends, or should he be making acquisitions, or what should he be doing? And uh, do I like it? Do I like uh, this? And I talk to the board, and but he says, you know. Uh, most of the things that we do, I mean, that's not what you do. You're an investor. I mean, you find companies uh, that you think are going to become dramatically in, in MSCI. So Henry says, you know, Ron, I would not have a public company were it not for you. In 2009, uh, when I'm going public, or 2008, when I'm going public, uh, I couldn't go public without you doing it. So he's an immigrant. His parents, uh, they had a uh, his dad was a general in Venezuela. And uh, there was a change, a, a coup, and they had to uh, flee from the country, and he goes to Morgan Stanley. That's what Morgan Stanley, MSCI. Uh, yeah. uh, and he starts the business, and then ultimately uh, he let the, Morgan Stanley let him bring it public. But when he goes public, the market isn't receptive. But we invest in the company. And, and then uh, and the stock doubles, and then it goes back down, and now we've made about 20 times our money. And he said, wow. you know, I, I, often, I often ask myself, how is it, you know, some other guys at Baron Capital sold, uh, but you didn't. You always bought more, and, and you hung in there the whole time. 
and other people are criticizing for uh, for you know this acquisition or that. But you understand the strategy of what we were trying to accomplish. And while that's not, you know, you're not competing against an index. You beat the indexes all the time. Uh, but, you know, not every single year. But over the long term, you kill them. And, uh, but, but uh, you know, and, and, and all the things I described to everyone else about, uh, you know, volatility and standard deviation, just everything I described to everyone else, I mean, that's, important that they need to have. You're an investor. You find these businesses, and whether it goes up or down, you don't think about it. Jay Pritzker, who was one of the people who, uh, who, uh, who was the first you know, really mentor when I, when I was starting, and, mm-hmm. and uh, he told me, and I, I was an investor in Hyatt then, and, and he told me once, he says, Ron, you know more about Hyatt than I know about Hyatt. He says, you know, and, and, and but the idea was about trying to understand the businesses in which we're investing so well that you can just ride through it. And he would tell me, he says, I don't ever think about the price of a stock but during the day, you know, during the year. The only time I ever think about stock prices is when I'm either going to buy or whether. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I'm going to sell. Let's talk a little bit about how you put the long in long-term investing. A couple of names. You've owned Charles Schwab since 1992, Choice Hotels since 96, Vail Resorts since 97. Where do you get the conviction to be so long-term in your core holdings? There's something about every business, the most important element of a business, you know, of course, they got to grow, and you really got to like and trust the people. Uh, and, uh, uh, but what is important is about competitive advantage. What is it about these businesses in which you've invested, which we've invested, that gives them a chance uh, to last for a long time and give them pricing power? In the case of Charles Schwab, that was the uh, we had a mutual fund business, and in 1992 we had 100 million dollars in the management. 50 was the mutual fund, and 50 was separate accounts. We could not make that business grow. 87 had 50 million in mutual fund. 1992 we had 50 million in mutual fund. It couldn't make it grow, and all of a sudden we get into Charles Schwab on the platform side. We learn about financial advisors. We learn about I had no idea who they were. Like you, uh, and RIAs, and, and uh, we learn about them, and we learn that they're clearing through Schwab, and uh, and, and they have Schwab has a platform, uh, the mutual fund marketplace, and then they had one source, 
and we got on uh, we got people who were advisors to recommend to Charles Schwab, which was uh, uh, for twenty thousand uh, dollars, we would they would have to do the work, and they weren't sure they were going to have a worthwhile spend uh, on us. And uh, where was the demand? So we got a whole bunch of people to call. They said, "Okay, uh, we'll put you on," and they put us on, and we started. Uh, they said a lot of people know who you are, but uh, didn't know how to buy what we're selling, and we got on the platform. Uh, our, our fund did well. We got recommended. We got uh, one of the top fund choices. And all of a sudden, where we couldn't get any money coming in, starting in ten thousand a day, fifty thousand a day, a hundred thousand dollars a day, and then uh, we started growing. And so when I saw that happening, and it all came from Schwab, I said, wow, I better really study Charles Schwab. And I studied Charles Schwab, and I saw that people were leaving big brokerage firms to go uh, on their own and then use Charles Schwab to clear. And uh, they didn't want to sell the product that the brokerage firms that they were working for were, were asking them to sell. And or they didn't want to just raise money. They wanted to uh, to have their own business. And and so it made sense to me, and, and I really liked Chuck. In fact, he was just being honored fairly, uh, I guess, the last few years uh, at some restaurant downtown, and and, uh, uh, and, and he invited me to be uh, one of the people uh, at you know, you know at this lunch, at this dinner. And, and then, uh, I don't know, maybe 100 people were there, 150 people, and he, he goes up there and and he said, and he calls me out from the from from the podium about how you know people like Ron Barron were able to be offered to his clients, which was a really good deal. So to Charles Schwab, they're responsible. It would be crazy for me to have a business like ours that couldn't grow, and all of a sudden we get this platform and grow, and for me not to realize that was a really big opportunity. I had to invest right. in it. So we invested in it. We right. made fifty times our money, sixty times our money so far. So far, are you are you still long Charles Schwab all this time? Yes, that's thirty years ago. Less than a dollar a share. Wow, now, that's amazing. I know your turnover rate is about five to seven percent, and the Barron Growth Fund, the average turnover is under three percent. That very much stands out compared to your peers, who often have turnover rates of fifty or a hundred percent, or even more than a hundred percent. They'll turn over a whole po- portfolio you know, twice a year, what are the advantages of the buy and sell approach that, that you've embraced? Well, when I was describing to you before about Disney and McDonald's and Federal Express and Nike uh, in the 1970s, uh, if I had been remained an investor in all those companies, they were up 50, 60. And we were investing in Disney in the 1970s when they were building Disney World in Florida. They had Disneyland in California, which was 5,000 acres, uh, and everyone around them uh, built other properties and made all that extra money And you know, in, in the orange groves in California. And in Florida, they said, okay, we're doing this differently this time. Instead of having 5,000 acres where we just have a park, we're going to buy 100,000 acres, and, and we're going to have the hotels. We're going to have all the other services. We're going to get the money from that. So I was investing in Disney in the 1970s, uh, when they were building Disneyland, uh, I was Disney World. Uh, I was investing in McDonald's uh, at a time when I would I would go. You know, my girlfriend at the time was in Washington, and when I would go down to Washington, I would go you know, every weekend. She would come to New York. I would go to Washington, 
And and uh, you know, Big Macs. I would I couldn't wait to go have Big Macs, and they were like less than a dollar. They were seventy five, eighty cents. I don't know. And I felt that with with McDonald's, the big opportunity was that they were uh, they they owned the land that was underneath of the franchisees' properties, and the Coca Colas were then uh, ten cents for a Coke. Maybe fries were ten cents. Maybe the hamburgers were twenty or twenty-five cents. I said, "Oh my God, the profit margin that they're on the verge of making—they could raise the price from ten to fifteen cents, and then all of a sudden, that extra five cents is all profit. Uh, or they can raise the uh, price of fries from ten cents to twelve cents, or apple pie uh, that they had from from fifteen cents to twenty cents. So I thought there was a tremendous amount of leverage in the pricing uh, that they had, and plus they had." Uh, this land and and uh, underneath of all of the hotels. So there's something about the business uh, that the Vail was the best mountain I had ever seen. Ski. I love skiing. And it was the best mountain. Other people would have 600 acres. Aspen was 600 acres. Vail was 14,000 acres. And and you know and there was oh and the big opportunity in Vail was that uh, when we invested in it in 1976, it was 16 or $17 a share. And then Leon, so what happened in Vail is that it was controlled by a man named George Gillette, who borrowed against the property and then built a radio station in, uh, in Tallahassee, I guess it was, or somewhere in Florida, and uh, borrowed $250 million and bankrupt. Leon Black bought the debt and turned into the equity uh, and then uh, brought the company public so he could pay back some of the money that he borrowed to, uh, buy, the, uh, to buy this. And the yeah. stock was sixteen or seventeen dollars, and then uh, uh, my and idea you've been was older ever since. Well, ever since, yes. And I bought. And what I did was that when he distributed his stock at thirty dollars a share in in two thousand six to all of his uh, partners, I knew a lot of his partners. In fact, one of his partners is one of my friends. His name is Billy Mack, uh, Mack Cali Real Estate. In fact, I was just oh. talking to him the other day. Uh, I was playing golf in Florida. And he said, you know, I, I only know a few stocks. I know your Tesla you told me about. Uh, I, I know uh, Iridium. I bought Iridium when you told me to buy Iridium. It was $7 a share. It's now $47. Uh, and, uh, and then Vail, uh, I was a, an investor with Leon. And then when he sold his uh, distributed all the stock at $30 or $28, uh, I came to you because you were buying the stock. And I said, what should I do? And, and you told me, I told him, I said, Billy, what you should do is you should buy all the stock you can buy uh, at this price, but if you want to sell your stock, I want to buy your stock. And so all those guys who I knew from from uh, from from uh, Leon Black from Apollo were selling the stock, I bought it all. And so we bought 10 or 12% of the company, around $30 a share. It's now 270 or 280 something like that. Oh, but the big idea was that it was the best place you could ski, and there had been nothing done in the town to regentrify it, and that was a town built in the 1980s, about 1980, and it was really decrepit, and the places would be junky, and you would stay there, and you'd pay 500 or a thousand dollars a night, and then you go skiing on a mountain for 45 dollars. And I said, if you made this town better, buy, sell, you know, build and then sell, build and sell, build and sell, uh, then what would happen is that the town would be so great. And everyone would come there, and we would be happy to spend anything you charge to stay in the town, even if you didn't own it. But we make all the money on this on the mountain. Instead of forty-five dollars a day, you can earn a hundred dollars a day. And so he 
he thought that was too risky, but he asked me to make a presentation to the board. I said, I'm not an active investor. I'm not trying to make you do things. If this is the way you should, they run too much risk. I just want to fix it up and sell it. And, and, and he did. And, uh, and then, uh, and all the people got their stock. And then what happened is that the new person comes in, Rob Katz. Rob, I got so lucky with him. And Rob, all the ideas that I had about uh, building and selling building, he took off and he did. And in addition to that, he took a ski pass and now he sells more than half of the tickets in advance before the season even starts, before you know if it's going to snow. And as a result of that, uh, we have half the ski passes sold uh, and he bought a, a network of mountains that he can sell, for example, in the Northeast. Now he can sell people go skiing in Bale from the Northeast. They couldn't get there before. Now they can buy the tickets uh, there. And so he has all this money in the till. And and then what, what happens is that instead of charging my $100 that I wanted to charge, he now charges $200 to ski on the mountain. And uh, and then he has this whole network that he that, it's a feeder for the ski pass tickets. But the best mountain, and he's got the best distribution system, and... Uh, and and, and, uh, and and it's a great brand, and he's a spectacular so, manager. So, Ron, I, I get the sense that your experience as a stockbroker buying and selling those companies that kept going up even after you sold it very much impacted how you behave as a mutual fund manager. You, you, you learned you had such a terrible experience selling winners in the 70s that in the 80s and 90s, you decided, I just can't get rid of these really good companies with great growth prospects. Yes, that's it. That's the whole idea. And if they have competitive advantage, so, so I, the big picture, the big picture I have is that my parents, so when we bought, when I was uh, five years old, and so I'm born in 1943, and we live in a, uh, you know, we live for, uh, that was during the war, and we're living, and my, my uh, parents and I, of course, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm a year old. We're living in Red Bank, New Jersey, in three rooms uh, owned by a Rassis, uh, uh, who is a Helen Rassis. Her husband's fighting in the war, and my dad's working for the Army, and we're living in these three rooms. And in 1944, we go live in Bradley Beach, which is just south of Asbury Park, and we live in a garage apartment, a detached garage apartment uh, where the, uh, it's so small that they have to have the refrigerator. It doesn't fit in the kitchen. It's outside on the porch. Uh, and uh, so we live there till 1948. And in 48, my parents buy their first house for $5,000 in Wanamassa, also outside of Asbury Park, $5,000. Then in 1955, they sell it for $10,000 to build a $20,000 house in West Allenhurst, also outside of Asbury Park. So to those houses, for example, uh, I went back three or four or five years ago uh, to see to see those houses, 1122 Grassmere Avenue and 542 Deal Parkway. Uh, and I go uh, look at those houses, and the house on, on, uh, in Wanamassa, that's the one they sold for 10000 it was every single house on the street was the same. They're coming back after World War II, they're all the same. They were like, one was yellow and one was brown and one had a little brick front and one had a carport. They're all the same. And my house was the second from the corner. It was the nicest house in the block. I was so proud. It had a little, you know, a little fence around the, the front yard, maybe it was a quarter acre house. And they had put a dormer on the roof 
so therefore, some extra room. So I'm standing there looking at this house, taking pictures of it, and a, a big giant guy comes to the door. I don't want him to shoot me or something, thinking, that, you know, who is this guy? <laughs> so I go up to him, and I say, you know, I, I, uh, I'm i Ron Barron, and this was I was the one who lived in this house for the just when it was built, a brand-new house. And he said, oh, I know your name, actually. And I said, wow. And, he, and it turned me turned out that this guy is a construction guy, and his wife is a uh, is a nurse, uh, and he said he works at night. And uh, he says, "Come on in." I couldn't come in because they had dogs, and I, I were afraid of dogs. But he, I said, "What's this house worth?" He says, three hundred thousand dollars." I said, "Wow!" My parents sure made a bad sale. And then I go to the other uh, house that they on Deal Parkway in West Allenhurst. The same thing. That was the one they built for twenty, and they sold ultimately for a hundred uh, when my dad retired. That's also worth three hundred, three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars, and and so so I think about it in terms of, of inflation, and when when I was young and I thought a hundred thousand dollars for the guy who lived on the corner and drove a Cadillac and we had an old Ford, uh, and he had a house on the uh, on the lake and we had a house in the middle of the block in a quarter acre or something like that, I said and and and. Uh, and he owned rides on the boardwalk, and a real estate guy. And I said, "Boy, I want to be successful like that." But, but again, hundred thousand dollars—that was all the money in the world. And and they had a fifty thousand dollar house. And so I said, "How do you have that?" And and uh, and so the, the concept of inflation, the concept of what things cost. When I was in, when I graduated college in nineteen. Uh, 65. My last year in college was, uh, you know, my everything was $3,500. When my first year was $2,200. My kids it was fifty or sixty, seventy thousand dollars. When my uh, grandchildren are going to the school right now, uh, they're six and eight years old, and I think their school must be fifty thousand dollars a year, sixty thousand dollars a year. They don't got the school anymore. It's uh, virtual. Uh, so whether it's a car, when I when when I bought a 240Z. Uh, for, uh, when I came to New York uh, for $2,000 or $2,500. And now they're, I don't know, twenty or $30,000 for these cars. So, so More every, than that. Yeah. And, and with my salary of $7,729 when I was a patent examiner, those are now $60,000, $70,000. So my big picture is that the value of your money falls in half every 17 years. So if you have $100,000 today... In 17 years, you have $50,000 of buying power. In 17 more years, at 25, 17 more years, it'll be 12. So basically, I think that the stock market uh, is the hedge against against the devaluation of your currency. So the stock market basically doubles every 10 or 12 years. So historically, it's about 10% a year, including dividends. So it's two or three, and that's because it keeps up with the economy, 2 or 3% real, 3 or 4% inflation. Yeah, people say there's no inflation. You go try to hire someone for the same price that they paid last year, and you'll find out how much inflation is. But, Ron, let, but, me, uh, let me tell you a little bit about a bad sale you made. Those 240Zs, that car you had, they've yep. become very collectible and nice versions of them today. From the 70s, nice versions go for dollars $80,000, dollars $100,000. Wow. We know when when I bought it, and when I bought it, this, this must be in nineteen uh, nineteen seventy, 19, yeah nineteen nineteen seventy. 
then what happened is that the uh, the list price was uh, $2,500. And right. in order, but there was a waiting list. They had mispriced it. There's a waiting list on those cars. And you had to pay the dealer cash, you know, a bribe. You had to give them three or four or $500. So basically it cost me $3,000 for a $2,500 list price car. So I can get it immediately, but an orange car. And then, uh, and then two or three or four years later, the price had gone up, and I sold the car. I bought it for three thousand when it was listed for twenty five hundred. And after I owned it for three or four years, I sold it for thirty two hundred dollars, thirty three hundred dollars. I sold it for more than I paid for it, and I paid over list when I bought it originally. So it doesn't surprise me, I guess, that eighty thousand dollars. Yes. So what they do with those cars is they do a full frame off restoration. They take them apart down to the last nut and bolt and then rebuild them. They're practically brand new 40 year old cars. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Ron, you had mentioned Matt Cali earlier. I want to share a quote of yours about real estate that I found intriguing. Quote, we believe there is a strong case to allocate capital to real estate in the par- public markets in an actively managed strategy. So so let's discuss how you do that. How do you actively manage real estate investments in the public markets? So we have a mutual fund. It's probably 10 years old. I think it must be it's certainly in the top 1% of, uh, of real estate mutual funds. And instead of just investing in REITs, uh, we invest in companies that are C-Corps. And it can be a hotel business like a Hyatt, for example, uh, or it can be a, uh, a, a service business like CoStar, uh, which enables people to uh, walk around and buy apartments, uh, rent apartments. Uh, you know, when you walk by the building, it'll show you instead of looking at the newspaper for an apartment uh, uh, that might be for sale, you can actually walk by one and you can look at it on your iPad. And you can see what that apartment, whether it's available and how much the rent is, and uh, go in and, and, uh, and rent it. And uh, so, or it could be a Trex where it's going out there and building, uh, you know, uh, decks over again with uh, with uh, wood that's uh, uh, you know composite, and it's better than the traditional wood, uh, lasts longer and uh, and uh, looks more attractive. So, so. Uh, it's not just investing in REITs, or it can be investing in a gaming company, uh, uh, like a like a, a pen gaming, uh, which uh, which has sold the real estate that it owns, but operates the properties 
now you have a play in Penn. And I've been investing with Peter Carlino in Penn Gaming uh, since Three Mile Island, right after, you know, there was a, I don't remember what year it was, but it was the 1970s, I think, somewhere, where, uh, uh, you know, there was a nuclear explosion at uh, Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania and in Harrisburg, and went to visit him something sometime after that. He was going public for the first time. I think the market cap on his company was twenty-five or thirty million dollars. He ultimately sold the company for seven billion. Uh, so, so you find these people, and uh, that that you can uh, trust, and you think are really capable. You know, do I do I really would I trust this person to manage money for my family? That is that something I would feel comfortable choosing them to be someone who would be. Uh, in charge of the assets that my family has if I wasn't here. And so it's the same kind of idea. So what we're doing is, like with Peter Carlino, there isn't anything this guy told me that he's ever not performed. And Stuart Bainham from Choice Hotels, uh, there isn't anything, I know Stuart Bainham a thousand times when I was in the patent office in Washington, I borrowed, uh, I somehow I, I, I had to get $2,000 because uh, Manor Care was going public uh, in 1969. And that was a company his father had started. And Manor Care was a nursing home company. And I had read about 1965. They had the nursing homes, the, the Medicare. I kind of figured out somewhere. And, and uh, Washington Post wrote these stories about it. I said, I've got to invest in that company. And so I invested. I borrowed $2,000 to get a margin account. And... Uh, uh, $1,000 from the Patent Office Credit Union, $300 from Household Finance, $300 from Beneficial Finance. Somehow I came up with another $400. I have no idea how. But I had I got the $2,000 to open up an account. At, I think the firm was called Reynolds uh, and Company. And, and uh, invested in Manor Care. And Manor Care uh, was ultimately went up 1,000 times from 1,000 wow. times. The company had a book value of uh, $12 million when it went public, and it came public at $20 million when it was first trade, you know, IPO, $20 million. That's the value of the whole company. It was, uh, we became, in the 1970s, I was uh, recommending the stock to my institutional clients. In the 1980s, we became the largest uh, institutional shareholder of Manor Care, and it was sold ultimately for Carlisle Group for $4.5 billion. 4.3, 4.4, 4.5, something like that. And but before it was sold, Choice Hotels now. So we got uh, Choice Hotels is now at a hundred dollar stock, and our cost is maybe originally three dollars. So and, and Stuart Bainham, one of those people. Anything he said, whether it's good or bad, Jay Pritzker was one of those people. Anything they said, Pritzker used to say to me, "Is Ron?" You now I would talk to him about contracts, and and he would say, "Ron." contract doesn't mean anything. If you have to have a contract to enforce an agreement, you're doing business with the wrong person. Because that right. just, because any good lawyer can break any single contract you have. So you have to look, you only have the contracts so you can keep track of what the deal was, not so you can expect to enforce it. So Ron, let's talk a little bit about one of your uh, bigger holdings. You've been a buyer of Tesla since 2014. The stock has just exploded. Last year, it was up over 600%. Uh, 
Is there any upside left here? Where do you think the stock goes from here? Well, we bought stock in Tesla. We spent $385 million uh, between 2014 and 2016 to buy 8 million shares, uh, 8 million one shares. And uh, the, uh, the average price is $40 a share, $42 a share. It's now 860 and or 850 and uh, so it's now $850 billion market cap. It was $42, $45 billion when we started. Uh, I think that in, and I've been saying this for a while, when we bought it, I thought that we would make uh, 20 times our money. We've made 20 times our money and so far. And, uh, and I think that it's going to be a $2 trillion company over the next 10 years, 8 or 10 years. That's $2,000 a share. And wow. uh, and uh, can we get lucky? Yeah, I can get lucky. And, and uh, if this autonomous driving uh, takes off the way I think it could be, that could be worth another $500 billion or trillion dollars. Uh, uh, ride sharing can be a really big deal. Uh, the, uh, the, the solar roofs, that could be a nice business for them. The battery business. Now when they build factories, the factories they build are for 250,000 cars, uh, a year production, and a factory, when they built them in, in California, uh, when they built it in uh, the first one in Fremont, that was about $17,000 of capital spending a car. It's now in China about $4,000 uh, a, a car. And the factory in China is probably at 250,000. People thought it was going to be 150,000 car a factory, and that was the opportunity people perceived. And uh, But we thought that they could do millions of cars a year in China. And that one factory they built so far is a 250,000 car factory a year, and uh, which is now at the rate it's producing, and uh, that's making somewhere around two and a half billion dollars a year. So they invested a billion, that's making two and a half billion. When you invested in McDonald's a long time ago, you could invest a million dollars as a franchisee, and if you worked, you know, crazy hours and you put on your apron and got all dirty, uh, maybe you can make a quarter of a million dollars a year for a million dollar investment. These guys have a billion-dollar investment to making two and a half billion a year. Uh, pretty wild. I mean, wow. it's like Steve Wynn when he goes into China and uh, and they spend two million dollars, uh, two billion dollars on the first hotel in uh, Macau, and uh, and they gave him. They were so happy that he came. They gave him land uh, that he sold for a billion dollars. He has a billion dollars net, and he started making it a hundred hundred million dollars a month. But this is oh, Tesla. They make. Uh, a billion, uh, a billion dollar investments, and they make two and a half billion a year. They're going to do the same thing in Germany, same thing in Texas. What about SpaceX, which Elon Musk also? Uh, oh, wait, is one more thing. And, and in Tesla, sure. the battery business, which I think the car business could be a six or seven hundred billion dollar business in revenues a year, and making two hundred million dollars a year, two hundred billion a year in ten years. So that's how you get to this two trillion dollar value. But that's not including the batteries. He thinks that the battery can be also a business as big as the car business. So think about that. So here he thinks he's going to go from 500,000 cars a year to 20 million cars a year, and he thinks his battery business is going to be as big as the car business. So I'm talking about the $2 trillion because of the cars. I'm not talking about it for the batteries. Uh, as far as SpaceX, what that is, is that uh, that's a business that um, but we're an investor. We own a little bit less than 1%. It's a private company, and the value on it is 40 Three billion, maybe, and uh, that was where we started with Tesla. I think that SpaceX is on the way to two trillion dollars, also. So, so I think that in Tesla we're going to make a triple in ten years, 
I think that in SpaceX, we're going to make 30 to 50 times in 10 years. Wow. Uh, and one of the big uh, reasons for that is that since the 1960s, uh, when we started, you know, when uh, President Kennedy said they were going to the moon, uh, and uh, the rockets that he used, they were disposable, $100 million rockets, $200 million rockets, they used one time, and then it burns up. I always, when I was working in the patent office, by the way, just as a little aside here, when uh, one of the things I did was I gave the patents on those on the coatings that were used on the capsules that returned to Earth. So all those capsules to make them not burn up, I was the one who gave the patents on that stuff. <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, so, full circle. Yeah, full circle. And and so with uh, with with uh, SpaceX, the competitive advantage that they have, the competitive advantage that uh, Tesla has is batteries stuff. Uh, the uh, competitive advantage that SpaceX has is that they can use the rockets over and over again. So the fuel to get into outer space <clears throat> is maybe uh, in orbit, maybe five hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars, uh, and the rockets are a hundred, two hundred million dollars. They're throwing away a hundred, two hundred million dollars instead of just spending the ro- the fuel over and over again. So now Tesla, the invention that they have is that they use the rockets over and over and over again. And uh, so everyone said, man, you can't do that. You know, you know, landing a rocket on a, on a platform in the ocean that's moving, they can use it again and again. That's insane. Nobody could do that. That's like dropping a pencil from your, from your hand and landing on an eraser and it's standing up. doesn't work. He did it. And so it's, it, so if someone else is going to do it, China, when they were successful uh, at this, at landing these rockets, uh, China had an editorial in the Wall Street Journal. And they said, uh, congratulations, Elon Musk, uh, but boy, our, our brilliant Chinese engineers, you're really missing out. You're getting beaten, not by a country, you're getting beaten by a guy. What's the matter with you? You've got to catch up. And they, and they think, and the China... Uh, you know, editorial in the Wall Street Journal was, we think we are, I don't remember if it's five years behind or ten years behind, but way behind. Elon Musk, not behind the United States, behind Elon Musk. Um, so so the idea here is that there's three or seven billion uh, people on Earth, or seven and a half billion, and, uh, and half of them don't have Internet. And if you happen to live in East Hampton or Vail or, or even Palm Beach, uh, there's, uh, there's not good reception uh, for Internet. And so the big opportunity in the relatively short term is that they can get, uh, they can uh, have very low cost of, of uh, launch. So Elon Musk owns 52% of the company, Google owns seven. Uh, we own a little bit less than one. And I think that um, this uh, uh, Internet to the, uh, you know, broadband from satellite uh, to your home is going to be an unbelievable business. Unbelievable. And because uh, and, and there's so many people uh, that need it. So, so this is like a utility. This is like water, and this is like uh-huh. electricity. You've got to have broadband. And you if you want to uh, cut down, down on the inequality uh, that's present in the world, you've got to have people educated. The way you're getting educated is with broadband. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Huh. Do you own any other non-public companies or is this is SpaceX the only private firm your uh, Baron Funds invests in? We own uh, Rivian, uh, which is another uh, you know, electric uh, car company, a small position yep. in that. And that's owned 20% by Amazon. And uh, uh, we have a small position in that. Uh, uh, we're just investing right now in Cruise. That's another private company that's going to do a car service uh, with autonomous driving in uh, in San Francisco and uh, uh, very shortly. Uh, that's about to start. We're investors in that. And then uh, we're investors in a couple of uh, small investments. That we're investor in a battery company, uh, the Goldman Sachs, uh, also a very small investment. Barron Growth Fund has this investment. Uh, and uh, the, the big problem with electric vehicles is where the battery's coming from. And right. And, and this company, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, sponsored, and Volkswagen is the uh, the big customer uh, for making these batteries uh, in uh, in Europe and using hydropower, Norway hydropower. And then a farmers network to allow farmers to get better seed at lower prices. Uh, we're an investor in that. So we have a, a bunch of small investments, but we have in Baron Growth Fund, for example, about uh, a bunch of investments that we invested ten, twenty million dollars. That are worth two hundred million, three hundred million dollars. There was a, a I had sold uh, a little bit of Tesla, and I wanted people to see what I'm doing. You know, so they don't think that I've died. And the only reason we still own Tesla is because I'm dead. <laughs> so, right. so, so, so I put a note up on our website that said that uh, what happened is that uh, it became. Uh, a very large percentage of a few funds that we manage, Baron Partners Fund, Baron Focus Growth Fund, uh, one offshore fund that we have. And so as a result of that, uh, I decided it would be prudent for me uh, as, uh, as as a business owner, not just as an investor in a company, to show people that actually we do take profits on occasion. And uh, on you know, when, occasion. When, when it's something, not because there's something wrong with the business or because I'm afraid about the volume, the volatility in the stock, but rather because uh, I want to show people that we're responsible. So out of the 8 million shares uh, that, uh, that we have, uh, 8 million one shares, uh, we sold 500,000 shares for our clients at, uh, at, at 450 and 500,000 shares. Remember, our cost is 41. Uh, uh, 500,000 shares at uh, 650, and uh, 250,000 shares at, at 850. And so basically, uh, it, it's it's painful every time I I've, I've sold it. But it, but the people just say, "Gee, how can you? Don't you ever sell? What's the matter with you?" And and but for so uh, what I did in in Tesla is that I said that. Uh, no, I will be. I'm not buying stocks. I only invest in our mutual funds, and, uh, and that was the commitment I made. 
and since 1992, with a couple of little tiny exceptions. And the exceptions uh, were when we wanted to have a large cap growth fund, I said, okay, I'll invest $10 million just to, to, if, without knowing anything about Berkshire Hathaway and Goldman Sachs and Qualcomm, without really doing research, uh, I'll invest 10 of these stocks and, and see how they do. And I'll compare that. That's my benchmark against our large cap growth. So we did that, and I did a couple of little things like that is what I did. And then, uh, then when Tesla comes along, I said, gee, this is going to be this monster company. And, uh, and what I want to do is I went to the board and I said, in 2014 to 2016, I bought all the stock I could buy for the couple of funds that I manage, and most of the mutual funds at Barron Capital, which are uh, you know, real estate or healthcare or fintech, or emerging markets, or small cap, they can't own Tesla. And so I, I and a couple guys that uh, could own it, I tried to persuade them, and I wasn't successful. So I said, I'm not used to taking anyone's opportunity if I invest in this. I'm not going to do it personally, but uh, I'd like to take $50 million on behalf of Barron Capital and invest it in Tesla. Uh, and I think I can make a billion dollars on it. And I, I can afford to lose $50 million. It wouldn't be pleasant, but I can afford to lose it. But I can't afford not to make a billion. And if I do make it, I'll give some of the profit to people who work at Barron Capital. In addition, that Barron Capital will just be stronger, and my goal is to make it last for 100 years. So I want it to be, have a stronger balance sheet, even stronger than it does now. So they, so they gave me permission. I said, I'm committing that I will be the last person to sell. So I'm, I'm the last person to buy. No one else is going to buy at Barron Capital, and I'll be the last one to sell. I'm not going to sell anything until all of the shares are sold by all of my clients. And the uh, directors of Barron Fund said, that makes, sounds reasonable, uh, and uh, it's fine to go do it. And so I did that, and uh, uh, it turned into, after a five-for-one split, a million one shares. So, uh, uh, so I told, uh, you know, so when the 500 uh, million two shares that we've sold so far for clients I haven't sold a single share. The 50 million became 850, 860 million, or 900 million, something like that. Okay, that's not too bad a return. No, pretty cool. And and I think that there's three more times to come from that, and uh, and then uh, over 10 years. And so so the very the advantage that we have is that there's hardly I don't know any people. I'm sure there must be out there. But I don't know people who are investing for other people who said, I'm going to make a 10-year investment or a 20-year investment uh, in a company. And as long as the fundamentals are as I expect them to be, stay with it. And I'm not going to worry about the price in the meantime. And, you know, so so that's what I do. And as long as the fundamentals for here, the business fundamentals for Tesla uh, from the time we invested in it in uh, 2014 uh, to last year, the business grew from $2.8 billion uh, to $25 billion in sales. The stock price didn't change. It went up and down, up and down, up and down, and then it went up 10 times. The stock price uh, caught up to, uh, to the business, and now the business is going to grow faster than the stock price over the next 10 years, I think. Wow, that's amazing. Let me, let me throw you a curveball for our last question. You ready for this? Yep. You uh you grew up in Asbury Park, and years after you left, you were sort of unhappy because the Asbury Park football team ended up 
winning the state championship, but they were disqualified. And you were so unhappy about it, you bought trophies for the teams and got rings for all the players that were inscribed with undefeated on the field. Tell us about that. Well, I read the article in the New York Times that described that, and uh, I, I felt badly. I mean, uh, when I went to high school, it was a minority high school. I mean, it was 50% black and 50% white, uh, and maybe it was uh, about that. Maybe it was two-thirds white and one-third black, or maybe it was 50-50. And there were 2,000 kids there, and now there's 1,000 kids when this happened, and it was virtually all minority. And, uh, and, and the, the shining, and it was 18 or 20% unemployment in Asbury Park, and the, the, the boardwalk was a mess. And I felt badly, and, and, and to hear these kids, there were two kids who were ineligible, and they uh, played on the team. And uh, because of that, they, they first, I think it was, they, were, uh, they went um, 8 and 0 or 9 and 0, and all of a sudden went, uh, we took away all the victories and went 0 and 9. And so I said, oh, my God, this is, this, this is everything for this town. And so I said, that maybe there's something I can do. And there was this trophy case in the front of the school uh, where so I bought the trophies uh, for and with, uh, this, with uh, the scores for every game that they had. It said undefeated on the field. And then every football player's name I had inscribed on there. And then I bought them rings that said undefeated on the field. And Springsteen uh, read about it. And then he gave everyone, including me, uh, baseball jackets, football jackets. It said the same thing, undefeated on the field. So I got, I got a Springsteen uh, jacket. from. Uh, that would be Bruce Springsteen of Asbury Park. I also have another story about Springsteen. So Go ahead. When, uh, when we when, when I have my 1980, we have uh, our first child, Judy and I, and uh, we didn't have a weekend house, and we bought... Uh, this, this old house built in 1860 on two and a half acres on Navasink River Road, 920 Navasink River Road, uh, and uh, overlooking Rumson, overlooking the Navasink River, and to the left you saw the ocean, maybe 60 feet high. And so, it, and, and it's now 1980, and we paid $250,000 for it. In the middle of these uh, 15 acre estates, uh, Bon Jovi was on the street, and uh, Roger Penske was on the streets. They had big houses. We had this tiny little house, uh, and uh, with a with a with a dirt basement. And so we have it for two and a half years, three years, and now we have two children. We have Judy's dad living with us, and we have a nanny, and we're bursting at the seams. This house. A guy knocks on our door, and says, uh, uh, "I'd like to buy your house." And I said, "Well, it's not for sale." And I. Uh, he says, well, how about for $400,000? I said, well, just a second. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I closed the door to say, Judy, somebody wants to buy our house for $400,000. So she says, sell it. So I open the door and I say, you just bought a house. And it turns out that this was a lawyer representing Springsteen. So he bought oh, that house funny. and he lived in it for, he, he had a habit by, he just gotten married. And he needed to have it by, um, I think it was like December Fifteenth or twelfth, he wanted to have it for a, a, a celebration in December, uh, and so we sold it to him at the end of the summer, and you no, know, no problem. And then, uh, and then, what he did afterwards is that uh, 
for my, I was in the board of Horace Mann, and he, uh, which is a day school my kids went to, and he would uh, give us regularly when when uh, they would have these auctions. I would call him uh, his agent, who turns out now the agent is my friend. Uh, but I would call the agent, and he would uh, give us, uh, you know, uh, record albums that would say he would autograph them and say R O C K Rocket, and then exclamation points Bruce Springsteen, and I, and I would auction for you know hundred dollars, two hundred, whatever it was. I would get you know I'd get these these gifts uh, that he would uh, put out uh, to raise money for Horace Mann. That's uh, from Bruce Springsteen. Ron, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We've been speaking with Ron Barron, founder of Barron Capital. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the other 400 previous interviews we've had over the past six years. You can find those at Apple, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. If you would like to get my free daily reads, you can sign up for that at Ritholtz.com. Be sure and check out my weekly column at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Reggie Bazil is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our product manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz, and you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.